Welcome to the Women's Wellness Psychiatry Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Glazer, MD, a reproductive and integrative psychiatrist here to help you make sense of the complex world of women's mental health. If your goal is to improve your emotional well-being, find fulfillment, and feel like your best self, you're in the right place. Welcome, my listener friends. It's the episode you've been waiting for, all about sleep. Sleep is one of the most common presenting problems that I hear about in my clinic. Usually it's sleep and anxiety. Those are the two most common things that I talk about with my patients, and oftentimes it's together. Sleep-related anxiety or anxiety about sleep. Does that sound familiar? When evening comes along and you begin to get more anxious and worked up about anticipating going to sleep, you might worry that you won't be able to fall asleep. Or maybe you wake up in the middle of the night and you begin running through the to-do list that is running through your mind. Or maybe when you wake up in the middle of the night, you look at the clock and you begin that countdown with thoughts like, oh no, I only have four hours left. Oh no, I only have three hours left. So this episode focuses primarily on pregnancy-related insomnia, although this is a common symptom and problem postpartum as well. So if you're postpartum, it might be hard to fall asleep because you're anticipating that your baby's waking up, or maybe you're worried about your baby's sleep pattern and what it will mean for your own. Sleep is a complex function. There's an entire field of medicine called sleep medicine, and there's many different components to sleep. Light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep. When you go to get a sleep study, it measures the EEG, the sleep waves. And there's different kinds of those too. There's slow wave sleep with theta waves, and there's various other components like sleep spindles and more that you would see on the EEG if you went to get a sleep study. There's also lots of different hormones responsible for sleep. For example, cortisol, the stress hormone, and melatonin, which is secreted by the pineal gland in the brain. We're not going to get into the details of how sleep works and sleep architecture because that's multiple lectures unto itself. This episode is going to be pretty practical. We're going to talk about how sleep is disrupted in pregnancy, and about 80% of women do report disturbed sleep in pregnancy. And more importantly, we're going to talk about ways to improve your sleep in pregnancy. It's first helpful to understand how sleep works outside of pregnancy to better understand how it is different during pregnancy. There's a reason sleep deprivation is used as a torture device. Sleep is an essential human function, and poor sleep can severely impact mental health. It's torturous to sleep restlessly night after night and wake up unrestored. And there's many theories about reasons why sleep is so essential. But the agreement is that without sleep, people cannot function. Generally speaking, people sleep in cycles throughout the night progressing through various stages of light sleep, deep sleep, and dream sleep. The amount of sleep an individual requires varies, but on average, seven to nine hours are recommended every night. In pregnancy, there's a decrease in restful sleep and in the amount of deep sleep and dream sleep, and an increase in daytime sleepiness and fatigue. The decrease in dream sleep in particular is thought to be related to pregnancy hormones, like progesterone. Additionally, there can be a couple of different sleep disorders that are associated with pregnancy. 
One really common one is restless leg syndrome. I've had various patients report restless leg syndrome in pregnancy, although some people actually experience that even outside of pregnancy. One common treatment option for that is taking some magnesium at bedtime. And you can learn more about that in the episode that I did on magnesium. Another sleep disorder that is sometimes associated with pregnancy is sleep apnea, which is when you're not getting enough oxygen and you wake up breathless, lacking that oxygen throughout the night. And the wake-ups are so small, so tiny, that you might not necessarily even consciously know that you've woken up gasping, but your brain knows, and it means that your sleep is not restorative. Many women in pregnancy also report that frequent urination, heartburn, and physical discomfort are reasons for poor sleep. And then anxiety and emotional problems are another significant reason for inadequate night's rest. Not getting enough sleep and sleep disturbance has been associated with various complications in pregnancy. That's one of the reasons we're talking about this. In addition to helping you feel more restored in your sleep, it's important to recognize some of these other complications associated with sleep disturbance in pregnancy. Those include things like smaller babies or preterm deliveries, other obstetrical complications, high blood pressure, preeclampsia, higher rates of gestational diabetes, and as I'm a psychiatrist, I'm going to definitely focus and mention increased rates of depression and anxiety. In fact, changes in sleep and insomnia are actually key symptoms of major depression and anxiety disorders. And these changes in sleep can go in any direction. It could be difficulty falling asleep, both at the start of the night or if you're awake in the middle of the night and trying to fall back asleep. It could be waking up too early and unable to fall back asleep at, say, three, four, or five in the morning. It could be racing anxious thoughts, or it could actually be too much sleep in certain forms of depression. A key question to evaluate is whether the poor sleep is, in fact, a symptom of a mood or anxiety condition or an independent insomnia condition. This can be a really valuable distinction to make because the treatment is going to be different if you're treating a mood disorder, an anxiety condition, or insomnia that's unrelated to emotional distress. Here's a few questions you can ask yourself to try to tease that out. And certainly talking with your doctor can help you tease that out as well. Is it hard to fall asleep because of anxious thoughts on your mind or because you're physically uncomfortable? When you get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, how long does it take to fall back asleep? If it takes longer than 15 minutes, is it because you're worrying or ruminating on negative things? If you're waking up too early, when you do wake up, do your thoughts immediately turn to worries for the day or for the future? Are you being kept awake because of evening anxiety attacks or waking up in the morning with a feeling of being tense, worried, or sad? If any of those answers are yes, then it could be that you're struggling with more than just pure, poor sleep. You could be struggling with anxiety or a mood condition that warrants some treatment and assessment. The relationship between mood anxiety and sleep is a two-way street. Poor sleep leads to worse mood and higher anxiety. We all have experienced this after a poor night's rest where the next day things might feel more overwhelming and it's hard to have the same kind of perspective that we might have if we'd had a good night's rest. It's hard to access 
the same kinds of tools and skills that we would normally have access to. And anxious thoughts and depressed mood themselves hinder sleep. So given the impact that poor sleep can have both on you and your baby, it's really important to understand why you might be having difficulty with sleep in order to guide the right treatment and prevent the complications that I mentioned during pregnancy and postpartum. Before seeking treatment for sleep, it's important to evaluate those potential reasons, why you might be having difficulty, whether it's a medical reason like sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, or a mental health condition like anxiety. The good news is that there's definitely treatment options for managing impaired sleep. And there's ones that include medication and others that are psychotherapeutic. One of my favorites is CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. This is a really well-researched, well-evidenced type of therapy that focuses specifically on managing sleep. It involves providing you with the information that you need about sleep, behavioral strategies and skills, and changing some unhelpful beliefs that you might have about sleep and learning relaxation techniques. It can be done with a trained clinician, or it could actually be done on your own with a workbook or an app or an online course. And I'll mention a few of those in the links. One of the key aspects of CBTI is sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene refers to all of the specific interventions that you can use to ensure good sleep. Here's a list of some. Number one, a consistent bedtime weekly and on weekends. Structure is super important. Number two, avoiding naps later in the day. Number three, ensuring that the bed is used primarily and only for sleep and sex. And that means no electronics, no television, so that the mind and the body can learn to associate the bed with just sleep. Next, avoid substances that can impact sleep, like caffeine, particularly later in the day. And then give yourself 15 to 20 minutes to fall asleep. And if that's not working, leave the bed to do something else and then return. This is, again, so that the body associates the bed with just sleep. Have comfortable pillows, blankets. Make sure the room is a good temperature. Oftentimes, cooler is better. And body temperature needs change during pregnancy. So what felt comfortable before might not feel comfortable during pregnancy. Then finally, many women find mindfulness-based relaxation exercises, meditation, and yoga to be helpful. These can both help immediately to induce a calm state prior to bedtime and in the long term to allow for the development of a mental and physical state that's better adapted to good sleep. Now, outside of these psychotherapeutic techniques and CBTI, there are medication options that can help with sleep. Because the majority of women experience difficulty with sleep in pregnancy, the number of women who take medication for sleep while pregnant is actually quite high. Studies report that about 1 in 25 women are taking medication several times per week, and 1 in 10 are taking medication at least monthly. The most common non-prescription medications that can help with sleep in pregnancy are antihistamines like Benadryl, diphenhydramine, and Unisom, doxalamine. These are non-habit-forming, and Unisom is often used in pregnancy because it can also help with nausea. There are also a number of prescription options available, 
And that really depends on the symptom that you're targeting. You can choose a different option if you're treating anxiety versus if you're treating very isolated insomnia. Talk with your OB or your psychiatrist about these options because there are several that are commonly used in pregnancy. So if you're struggling with sleep, if you answered yes to some of the questions that I posed in this podcast episode, if you notice yourself feeling uncomfortable physically, and if you notice an impact on your mental health and your well-being, it's really important to address sleep, both for yourself and for the health of the pregnancy and the development of your baby. There's both non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatment options, and I would encourage you to really explore those with your clinician in order to make sure to get the restful sleep that you need during this important time. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. As you know, my goal is to share with you the most helpful information that moves you towards emotional well-being. If you have suggestions or questions, I'd love to hear those. And I also always appreciate a rating that will help others find this valuable content. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. Please note that while I am a clinical doctor, this podcast is not a substitute for nor should be taken as medical advice. No specific health advice is being given on this podcast and no physician-client relationship is created by you listening to this podcast. All information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only.